Please remain standing, and as you do, open your Bibles to Psalm 11. The text is also printed there on pages 4 and 5 of the bulletin. Psalm 11, to the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Please be seated. And as you do, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for psalms like this, psalms that are boosting and boasting in confidence in you as a refuge. God, may you be our refuge today as we begin a new year, throughout this new year and into the years ahead. May we look to you, may we see you seated on your throne in heaven. Be glorified in the preaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As a father and a user of many building toys, I consider myself expertly qualified to answer a slight variation of the question posed in Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations of the tower, the castle, the house, or the random structure with no apparent design or function are destroyed, what can the children do? Nothing. The children can do nothing. This is a constant lesson that is being learned on a daily basis in our home. Building with toys is always a risk. It doesn't matter what you use. The materials are as unstable as the builders, particularly if the builders are low in age but really, really high in energy. Your sole confidence is in your ability to plan, but also to kind of protect and to shield from the mass chaos that is building with children. Doesn't matter if you're using Legos, if you're using wooden blocks or trains, or the ever popular, even for adults might I add, magnet tiles. Once the building starts to fall, falling is how it will inevitably end. Tears may be shed, so hugs and comfort will be needed. Adjustments will be made for the next project, and the next project will start with that same threat that all things will fall apart. Confidence is always lacking when you're building with children's toys. But thankfully, such a bleak and depressing outlook does not apply when life falls apart. And as verse 3 shows, Psalm 11 is a psalm about life when it is crumbling, when the foundations are threatening to be destroyed. Yet, there is confidence that you and I can have because there's confidence that David had. There is something stable to stand on even when the foundations are far from stable. David's song here in Psalm 11 proclaims his confidence. Yes, things may be falling apart. Yes, the foundations of his life may be crumbling. And yes, life may even feel a little bit hopeless. 
But none of this nullifies the confidence that can be found in the Lord. The Lord is a proven refuge, is the proven refuge for his people in times of great crisis. Today we're starting a new sermon series that will carry us through this first month of the new year. In this series, we're going to work through Psalms 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, one psalm each Sunday. I've entitled this series, Old Songs for a New Year. For these songs, all of them, all 150 of the psalms, have been sung by God's people for generations, and we should continue singing them today and in the years ahead, however long Christ should tarry. And while these five particular psalms we're going to look at will touch on some similarities of subjects, each has its own particular emphasis or its own theme that resounds in each psalm. The theme or the emphasis of Psalm 11 is confidence. David is filled with it, despite having no humanly justifiable reason for it. Any human being in their right mind would be running for the hills, and yet David is not. If you notice, David makes no request in this psalm. There is no pleading with the Lord. God is not even directly addressed at any point. This is simply a song of David expressing his confidence in the Lord. It doesn't matter what he's facing. He is unwavering. The outline is printed there in the bulletin for you. We're going to look at this psalm of confidence in three parts. First, fearful guidance, then fixed gaze, and then firm ground. And together these are to confirm or to encourage us that the Lord is a proven refuge for his people in times of great crisis. And we begin negatively with this fearful guidance. From the very beginning, David reveals that he has a problem with this counsel that he is being given. It conflicts with his opening line of confidence. In the Lord I take refuge. David is unwavering in his certainty in the Lord, but those advising David, they think he should reconsider. They're saying, David, you may want to hold off on that thought. And before we look at their advice, it is worth considering or wondering who are these advisors. And there is debate over who it is who's speaking to David. It could be his enemies. It could be the wicked that's mentioned in verse 2. They're mocking David, hoping to crush not only his body but even his soul. To leave him in utter despair and hopelessness. You can almost hear them saying, fly little birdie, fly. Or like that childhood bully, why don't you run home to your mommy? But the advice could also be a glimpse we're receiving into the wrestling within David's own soul. Part of him is clinging to the Lord, saying, in the Lord I take refuge, while other part of, his, part of him is saying, run for the hills, get away from here. It's not safe here. You can almost hear David sounding like another psalmist in Psalm 42 when he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. But these advisors could also be very likely friends of David, loyal friends, good friends. 
faithful friends who have David's best interests at heart. They want their king and their friend to be safe. I believe this is the most natural reading of the quotations from verses 1 through 3. Yes, David may be struggling within himself. Yes, the wicked may be mocking him. But he is really struggling at reconciling his confidence in the Lord with this good counsel or this counsel from good and even godly friends. They're not trying to trap David. They don't want him to abandon his faith or forsake the Lord. Their intentions are to see him, to love him, to serve him, even in these times of great crisis. And we've all been there. We've been on the receiving end of such counsel. We've been on the giving end of such counsel. We're facing difficulty. It feels like the foundations are crumbling, and so we seek out godly counsel. In addition to taking our burdens before the Lord in prayer. And what do we get as the result? Sometimes we find the counsel that we receive and the conviction of the Spirit are in conflict with one another. And we can be left confused. Wondering like David, how can you say this to my soul? Don't you know I'm trying to stand here in confidence and in the refuge of the Lord and you're telling me to do something different. And so what we can see here from David is that there still needs to be discernment even when it comes to receiving counsel, good and godly counsel. Counsel can be wrong. It's fallible. I've been wrong in counsel that I've given at times. I've gone wrong in counsel that I've taken from wise and loving friends and family. For example, I can remember starting in seminary fully convinced and counseled to take out loans. That was my answer in the crisis of how am I going to pay for this? And after a year of loans and doing just some basic math of multiplying by four, I realized that such counsel was wrong. Despite it being well intended, the people who gave me that counsel had my best interests at heart. It would have left me in a debt that I never would have gotten out of. And so I was convinced with some new counsel as well to trust in the Lord to provide some way and somehow. And he did. Through work opportunities, through the generosity of his people. No, I'm not saying that taking out a loan is wrong. But am I saying that in that particular context, that particular counsel was? Yes, I am. Even as we rightly seek guidance from fellow believers, we must not throw discernment out the window. We must not abandon that the Lord is our ultimate refuge. And this is precisely what David is being told to do, given the bleak outlook we see in verse 2. Listen to what his friends tell him in verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Things don't look so good for David. His friends are not wrong in the evaluation they give. The enemies are violent. They're eager to fight. They're underhanded and deceptive, lying in the dark, in the shadows, waiting for David not to be suspecting an attack. David is like a trapped bird. If he stays, the hunters will surely finish him off. If he flies, he's got a slight chance that he'll miss out on their arrows. 
I'd never been hunting before, particularly bird hunting, but apparently that's what you do. You make the bird make a bad decision. Stay and die or fly away and have a slight, slight or higher chance of making it alive. So to David's counselors, they're convinced that everything that David has built is one step away from crumbling into a pile of ruin and rubble. If the foundations are destroyed, it only seems natural to encourage flight over fight. Humanly speaking, the advice he's given makes sense. But the problem is the Lord as a refuge is not even a factor in the minds of his friends. He isn't even on their radar. For in their fear at looking at what lies before them, they have forgotten the Lord. They're consumed with fear, which renders their counsel hopeless. All is lost, they say. The wicked have won. Run for your life. And again, this doesn't always mean that it's wrong to flee. It would be foolish if a building is burning for you to sit there and say, I'm taking refuge in the Lord. Or to find or seek an escape in a violent situation. We know that David even ran at times. He ran when Absalom came into Jerusalem. But we also know that even when David ran, he trusted. In that scenario, he told the priest to leave the ark because if I have found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. There is a way to flee with the Lord as refuge, and there's also a way to flee consumed with fear that the Lord is not. And that's what David is being encouraged to do. Flee as though the Lord is not your refuge. Flee as though there is a safer place to be found. Flee as if, as if there's a hope found outside of the Lord in the protection that he offers. And there is much for us to heed and to hear on this point. We have been living in a constant, all-consuming state of fear. And obviously I am including the pandemic, but I am not limiting it to the pandemic. Over these past few years, fear has touched everything and everything in our lives. And the overwhelming counsel, if you listen to whatever side you're listening to, has been to run. Run from this. Run to that. Flee from this. Flee to that. And such fearful running and unending counsel has resulted in this profound and this destructive tribalism. We run to and we seek out our political tribes, our theological tribes, our social tribes, our ethnic tribes, whatever tribe that you belong to. And then we counsel one another to keep running, keep fleeing, keep fearing. And what has this fear done? It's turned people into enemies. It's turned stances on important subjects into this kind of litmus test of faithfulness, of devotion. It's left people paralyzed, hopeless. And it's been a direct obstacle to our desire and our ability to seek refuge in the Lord. And I haven't even begun to mention those normal everyday fears that we have. Those things that are part of our everyday lives that threaten to paralyze us. Or threaten to leave us seeking someplace, any place to run and to hide. 
And please hear me out. I'm not saying these fears are misplaced or they're silly or they're ridiculous. They are part of living in a sin-filled, broken, and at times scary world. But however, like David, we must not allow this all-consuming fear to guide us, to guide the counsel that we give, to guide the counsel that we receive. There is something better than running for the hills. There is something the righteous can do even when the foundations are being destroyed. Even when those fears leave us frozen where we stand. And this then leads us naturally then to David's gaze. We see there's a switch from verse 3 to 4. David refuses to follow this fear-ridden, fear-consumed counsel of his friends. And instead he chooses, whether literally with his eyes or figuratively in his heart, to look at heaven. And what does he see? He sees the Lord. Don't miss how in verses 4 and 5, almost every phrase starts with, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He's the central picture in what David sees. As the foundations are being destroyed, David finds that the Lord is not on his break or asleep. He's not preoccupied or busy. He's not wrestling on the side with some contender who's seeking his throne. He's on the throne as he always was, as he always is, and as he always will be. I have no doubt that David was struggling with the same fear that his friends had. It was probably very tempting for him to say, you know what, yeah, let's do that. Let's run. Let's get out of here. But because he's already convinced and confessed in verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge, instead of fleeing to the mountains, David lifts his gaze higher than the highest mountain. And he invites all who find refuge in the Lord to follow him. And what does David learn? What is he so confident of as he looks? I say there's five things we can quickly fly through. First, he learns the Lord is near. He says the Lord is in his holy temple. We know the temple is the place where God gathers with his people. It is where righteousness and peace are found. In the midst of evil, wickedness, and chaos. So David is stating that even as the foundations are crumbling, his Lord is near. Fear would tell David that you're alone, you're all by yourself, you've been abandoned, nobody cares for you. But the Lord in his temple screams that David is not alone, he's not been abandoned. There is someone there with him in the trenches. But second, we also see that the Lord is reigning. David says the Lord is in heaven. This nearness of the Lord does not somehow negate God's transcendence. He still stands above the chaos, the crisis, the fear-inducing circumstances. He's not phased by it. He's not trying to adjust to it. He is sovereign over it. The Apostle John reminded the early church, also wrestling with violence and evil of their own, In Revelation chapter 4, which Bill read earlier for us. 
if by chance you had happened to count how many times John uses the word throne in those 11 verses, the answer is 12. Ten of them directly referencing the throne of God. Because that emphasis on the throne, John saying the throne, the throne, he's seated on the throne. Things are surrounding the throne. There's glory on this throne. It's emphasizing that the one who sits on it is sovereign. He's not moving. His hand is still on the wheel. As Dale Dale Ralph Davis writes, that throne is not a place of inactivity but of supremacy. It does not suggest distance but dominion. The Lord reigns even in crisis and disaster. David is confident of this. But third, we also see that the Lord sees and knows all things with perfect sight and knowledge. David says, the Lord, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. God is no watchmaker who's wound things up and just kind of let it go off into motion. He's not sitting there saying, oh, I wonder how this is going to go. He's actively engaged. He's the righteous judge. And unlike all human judges, the judgment of God is perfect. Because he alone is the one who can see all things in all places. Nothing will escape his gaze, whether it's the suffering of the upright or the violence of the wicked. He sees these things, and also, one step further, he sees the heart, intent, and desire of each and every human being. He will not be duped. He will not be swindled. Those shots in the dark that David is being threatened by, the Lord sees them. The wicked ready to attack Lying in the shadows, the Lord's not caught off guard. Even the well-intended but fear-ridden counsel, God knows that too. And then fourth, we see one step further, the Lord not only sees, but he's refining his people. He tests the righteous. That picture of testing is the ever-familiar, ever-popular used scriptural analogy of, of testing of precious metals. Getting rid of that dross so that a pure product is left behind. So David recognizes that even the foundations that are crumbling, even this heat that he is undergoing, the finished product will be his own faith refined. The wicked may seek to destroy David, but the Lord has better intentions, even if David has no idea what those may be. He knows the Lord is testing him for his own good. And then fifth and probably most graphic, David sees and is confident that the Lord hates and will judge all wickedness, violence, and evil. Listen to what he says in verse 6, or the end of verse 5. But his soul hates the wicked, the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, or more accurately, the Lord will rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. In our day, this kind of language easily makes many to feel uncomfortable. No one wants to talk about God hating things or bringing fire or judgment or destruction. We should rest confidently, though, that this is a truth for us to bank on. No, we shouldn't be arrogant about it. 
But this is our confidence in the face of great evil. That God hates that evil just as much as we do. That God will destroy that evil as much as we want to see it destroyed. David's unashamed of this reality. He says the Lord hates evil and will do something about it. It is without a doubt, it is certain that he will rain those coals. He will bring that fire and sulfur. So as David gazes at heaven and he sees the Lord as king and judge, he also sees the Lord's hatred of evil. And he sees his hatred of even those who commit it. And he's reminded of his promise that there will be a day that it will end. That picture of fire and sulfur is meant to draw our minds back to, to Genesis 19. Where Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that loved violence and hatred and evil, tasted fire and sulfur. They didn't get the purifying testing that the righteous are privy to. They get the testing that leads to sentencing, which leads to judgment. And this judgment is not subjective or it's not vindictive. David says it is well-earned. It is well-deserved portion of those who love violence, of those who aim their arrows at the upright, the righteous in heart. David is confident of all of this as he, as he looks and he sees the Lord on his throne. He's convinced of the Lord's nearness, of his sovereignty, of his testing, of the surety of his judgment. And it answers the question, what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? They can do what David does, fix our gaze to heaven. We can grasp hold of the reality that our God is present with us. That he is in complete control over the crisis that is facing us. We can rest in the reality that he is even using this crisis to test us, to refine us. And we can know without a shadow of a doubt that evil and those who commit it will be judged in the end. If you are unconvinced that such confidence can be found, I would challenge you with the question, where are you fixing your gaze? And I challenge you humbly because I will admit that too often my gaze is fixed anywhere but the throne of God. It is too often on that fear-inducing, that fear-consuming crisis that stands in front of my face. We'll be singing before we partake of the Lord's Supper the song, Behold Our God. It is one that we have sung often, and the chorus invites us, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. What are you beholding? Or to use modern language, where is your gaze? Is it on the crisis facing you? Be it sickness, anxiety, doubt, or that sin that so easily entangles and trips you up. Is it on the uncertainty of a new year? There's a lot of things that may be facing you and you have no idea which way it's going to go. 
Or maybe it's the certainty that this year is going to look a lot like last year. Is it on everything that is going wrong around you, in you? If so, I would encourage you, I would plead with you to take David's words as an invitation to behold our God. He's on his throne. He's near. We will literally taste of his nearness when we partake of the table together. The promise that our Lord God draws near to those who draw near to him. He is sovereign over your crisis. It is in his powerful hand. And then as you behold him, would you learn to adore him? Let the adoration of, the, of our God seated on his throne drive away your fears. David certainly did. And it was through such adoration then his confidence in the Lord at his refuge only grew. And finally then we end where David does, on firm ground. We see this in verse 7. David's going to close his song with the full assurance of where he stands. In a way, he's almost answering the why to his confident statement back in verse 1. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. You can kind of insert this resounding why in the world do you do that? And he closes with, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. David is firmly standing because of the character of the Lord. He's the righteous one, the one who loves righteousness. David is fully convinced that the Lord is in his corner. The one who sits on the throne is the righteous one, and the righteous one loves righteousness. So therefore, there's an implication that the Lord loves those who are righteous. He loves those who pursue righteousness who take hold of it. Without a shadow of a doubt, David knows he, is, he has in his possession not simply the Lord's protection, as wonderful and as helpful as that will be, but he has his love. He has the affection of the one sitting on the throne. So why then wouldn't David be oozing with this confidence? Why wouldn't he be quick to spurn that fear-consumed counsel of even his well-meaning friend. The upright in heart may get the aims of the wicked's arrows, but they also get the aim of the covenant love of the creator and sustainer of all things. That's a confident and firm place to stand on. But there's more. David also stands firmly because of the promise of the Lord. And it is a confidence-boosting promise. The upright will see his face. There is great encouragement to be had in this verse, in this one alone. And it's not simply and only future-oriented as much as it is very, very future-oriented. David is standing on that promise presently. Crisis tempts David and us to think that God has somehow hidden his face. He's turned his face away. That communion with him has been suspended. And so it teases hopelessness and despair. But David says that's not true. As the God who is righteous and loves righteousness, those who are righteous can rest assured that God is near and that his intimacy with them, the seeing of his face, remains present. 
but again, it's also very much future-oriented. Seeing the face of God is David and our ultimate end. David stands on the firm ground that whatever happens to him, even if the foundations were to utterly and totally be destroyed, there will be vindication. On the other side of it, he will see the face of the Lord. There will be full communion with the Lord before his throne. Again, we can fast forward to the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, where the Apostle John counsels the church with these hope-filled words. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Yes, David was looking to beholding the face of the Lord in the context of deliverance from this crisis. But he was also looking forward to the very end. When all evil and wickedness and corruption are not simply removed, are not simply pushed aside, but they're exterminated. You and I can know with even greater confidence than David that such a day is coming. And we know with an even greater confidence that the Lord of the Lord's righteousness and his love of righteousness. Because we know it in Jesus Christ. He's the one who's going to bring an end to all wickedness and evil. In him we are righteous and loved infinitely and eternally by the God who sits on the throne. Jesus Christ, we know, as Peter would say, is the one whom, though we have not seen, we love. And though we do not see him now, we believe in him. As we'll sing at the end of our service, Jesus Christ is the solid rock on which we can stand. There is no other ground firm enough to hold, especially when crisis hits and fear abounds. So brothers and sisters, may I encourage you and plead with you to seek refuge in the Lord and Him alone. Don't run to those places of refuge that this world holds out to you. They will surely crumble. They will ultimately fail. Don't run to those places that you have set up for yourself. Those places that you run to to escape the fear and the crisis that is facing you. Those places where you go to hide. Those will sink along with the foundations. But flee instead to the mountain that is Jesus Christ. There your feet will be firmly rooted. There you will not be shaken or destroyed. Because there you are protected. There you are loved. There you are given a hope that will last whatever crisis you are facing, now and for all eternity, to the hope that you will see his face. So as we begin this new year, some of you are likely feeling a bit like David. The foundations of your life and maybe the life around us feels like the foundation of my children's play toys. You're simply waiting for it all to just to come crumbling down. Some of you may already even be there. Fear seems like the only response you have to everything that is going on. 
a new variant, a new election cycle, a new health crisis, whatever the case may be. Others of you may be feeling like David, very confident, either because of, by God's grace, crisis has averted you, or by God's grace, in the midst of your crisis, you are firmly standing, as David did, with the Lord as your refuge. But wherever you are, or whatever your outlook for 2022 may be, let David's song here in Psalm 11 give you confidence. And let it motivate you to seek the Lord as your one and only refuge. Let it still all of your fears, the fears of the known as well as the unknown. The evil that threatens you and your foundations. The Lord is faithful, he is sovereign, he is near, he is righteous. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Take refuge in the Lord. The Lord is the proven refuge for his people in times of great crisis. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this psalm of confidence. God, forgive us for where we are oftentimes consumed by fear, paralyzed by fear, instead of confident in you as our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble. Help us to run to you, to seek our refuge in you, to fix our gaze to heaven where you are seated on your throne, ruling and reigning over all things and yet so incredibly near to us by your spirit. Give us confidence, we pray, not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not even in positive thinking, but God, in you and in your word and the promises that you have for us, answered yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.